Well, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, let's open to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And chapter 3 is where we're at for one more week. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you, Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. The danger of unbelief. The danger of unbelief. I have said that that's really the main point of this portion of Hebrews 3 that we have looked at now for two weeks and we will finish our look at it this morning. The danger of unbelief. What's so, what's so dangerous about unbelief? What's so serious about unbelief? Probably if I were to ask, if we were to take a poll here and list and say, why don't you list the most serious, egregious sins in the Bible. We'd probably name things like murder, adultery, hopefully like idolatry, maybe pride. But I wonder if we would think of unbelief. Unbelief. What's so dangerous about unbelief? The unbelief that's in view here in Hebrews chapter 3 it is not just the natural struggles with doubt. All of us have those at time to time. That's natural part of the Christian life. So be encouraged if you wrestle at time to times with doubt. Look to Christ in that. That's not what's in view here. Or, or nor just kind of momentary lapses of courage, momentary lapses of trust. We battle that, don't we? But what's in view here is the hard-hearted spurning and rejection of God's word, his word in Christ, this good news, the rejection of his promises and his power, really the rejection of God himself. In the Bible, belief or faith is never merely an intellectual agreement with a set of truths. But in the Bible, faith is a wholehearted, whole life trust in God's word, his promise, that issues in obedience to his word. That's faith in the Bible. So in one sense, what's so dangerous about unbelief? Well, in one sense, unbelief is at the root of every sin. All those sins we just listed, a failure to believe God, to trust his word, to believe his character and who he is, is at the root of sin. And on the other hand, faith, trust, is at the root of worship and obedience. In fact, later on in this very book, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Him, to please God. For everyone who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It's really at the root of all of our worship and our obedience. By contrast, John, 1 John chapter 5, I know some of the ladies, many ladies just studied the book of 1 John, may remember this from chapter. Five, as John is writing, 
He talks about the witness of the Father. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. But listen to these words. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. That's unbelievable. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar to deny him. So there's a seriousness to unbelief. And the witness John was talking about is the witness of the Son, the gospel. And that's exactly the perspective now of our author. He's talking about faith in Christ, faith in God's final word in Jesus. And this unbelief has deadly consequences. So according to our author of Hebrews, unbelief is an ever-present danger that we must be watchful of. We must be on guard against. None of us, no one in this room is exempt from what he is warning us here in chapter 3. So let me read again. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. I'm going to read the whole section again, and we'll look at the end of this section. But let's get it all in front of us one more time this Sunday. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It's on the screen also. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, Brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who rebelled when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see they were not able to enter because of, see the last word, unbelief. Ultimately, Unbelief, the, the rebellion, the sin, the disobedience, what's underneath all of that? Unbelief. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the danger of unbelief. This is our third look at this text here. And we want to finish that this morning as it is such a powerful example. So just to remind you where we're at, maybe you weren't here, haven't been here, if you're new. In this letter, the author here who's really a pastor writing a sermon to his congregation, his main pastoral purpose is that we would hold fast to Christ. We would persevere. We would hold fast to Christ regardless of circumstance. We'd hold fast until the end. In fact, you see it again in verse 14 of the text I just read. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So that's his kind of main pastoral purpose. Purpose And throughout this letter, he shows us the superiority of Jesus and all that he has accomplished as incentive to hold fast 
to Christ. So in this first part of his sermon, chapters 1 through 4, the first major part, he is comparing us, the church, to God's people under Moses in the Old Testament. The people under Moses who received the great revelation at Mount Sinai, the pinnacle of God's revelation in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, they received that revelation given by angels through Moses. We now have received a greater revelation in Christ, not through angels, but in the Son, because He has fulfilled all that prior revelation. It's all culminating in His Son. We have received that revelation in the Son who is now exalted as the heir of all things. And he's calling us, pay close attention to what you've received, to this gospel, this good news. But then he extends the comparison in chapters 3 and 4. And he asks us, he invites us to remember what happened to the Exodus generation. The Exodus, the ones who were brought out of Egypt, the ones who were at Mount Sinai, who witnessed that great revelation of God. What happened to that generation? Well, they went into the wilderness and they died in unbelief. The entire generation fell in unbelief, a rejection, a rebellion, and died under God's judgment. And here's his main point for us in these couple chapters. Avoid the unbelief of the people of God in the wilderness who failed to enter God's rest. Avoid that. That's that's his big pastoral point here. Don't imitate their disobedience, their unbelief, their rebellion. You have received a greater revelation. Don't imitate what they did after Mount Sinai, but instead hold fast Christ until the end. Now for our author, his link between those events back in the book of Numbers in the wilderness and the church today, his link between those two things is Psalm 95. That's what he quoted. I read it there at the beginning of the passage I read. That's a quote directly from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. What is Psalm 95 about? Psalm 95 is the Holy Spirit's application of Israel's rebellion at Kadesh, And it's an application to the worshiping people of God today. That's what Psalm 95 is. Psalm 95 is written hundreds of years after what happened in the wilderness. And yet the Holy Spirit in that psalm is applying what happened there, that rebellion at Kadesh when they refused to enter the land. And he's applying it to the church today. And what our author is doing is taking Psalm 95 and drawing out the meaning and implications to the church for us. So this is our third part, third look at this bigger section of Hebrews. Part one, a few weeks ago, we just looked at Psalm 95, the quote there, and the main exhortation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the main exhortation of Psalm 95. Don't don't do what they did back there. Today, today, it doesn't matter what day it is, it's today if you hear his voice Do not harden your heart. So we looked at that in part one. Then part two is last Sunday. We looked at verses 12 through 14, which was the author's immediate application of Psalm 95. And his immediate application, remember, was a warning. Watch out. Take care. Beware, lest there be in any one of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart. Lest there be in you like there was in that wilderness generation. None of us are exempt. Lest there be in any one of you, he says. So take care, brothers and sisters. That's his immediate application. And then he says, the remedy to that is to encourage one another day after day. How have we need each other to guard us from sins, deceit, and unbelief. So that, that was the first two parts. This morning, part three, last part, verses 15 through 19, the end. Now what our author does here is he's going to draw out the meaning and implications of Israel's unbelief in the wilderness as interpreted by Psalm 95. That's what he's doing now. He's going to draw out the meaning and implications of that failure as Psalm 95 interprets it. And he's doing this here to undergird his exhortation. He just said, watch out, beware of this unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. And now he's going to show us why that's so, so serious. He strengthens his exhortation by drawing out the implications from the book of Numbers as interpreted by Psalm 95. So what our author is going to do now is he's going to bring together Psalm 95 that he just quoted and the events Back in Numbers 14, that's where that rebellion is found. He's going to quote Psalm 95, and he's going to help interpret it through the events back in Numbers 15. So just, just step back now and, and realize kind of the big thing he's doing here, the big picture here. Our author asserts that God's people in the Old Testament serve as an example for God's people today. God's people in the Old Testament serve as an example. Yes, there's a different covenant. He's going to get to that. Old covenant, new covenant. There are advantages under the new covenant. We'll get to those. But here, right now, what he just wants to see is that the people, God's people in the Old Testament are to serve as an example for God's people today. Because ultimately, there's one people of God called by his word to the same kind of faith and obedience, same kind of faith and obedience under the Old Covenant as today, to enter the same ultimate, same rest. That's how he sees it. And so those people under the old covenant serve as a present example for us today. In fact, Paul, the apostle, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul, Paul though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, does the exact same thing. Do you know that? Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he looks back at the same period, the wilderness generation, and he wants to apply it today. And he lists what happened in the wilderness, how most of them didn't make it to the promised land. And he, and he concludes like this. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. It sounds a lot like Hebrews. The, these things were written as an example. They were written for our instruction upon the, whom the end of the ages have come. So we're supposed to learn from this example. So that's what he's doing here. So let's, let me put the, the text back up for you again on the screen, just these verses, 15 through 19. That's our focus. Hebrews 3, 15 through 19. Notice what he does here, and then we'll, we'll break it down a little bit. He restates the opening exhortation from Psalm 95, verse 7. Do you see that in verse 15? Today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts. That's the main exhortation. That's what he's driving at. Don't harden your heart in unbelief. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And now he's going to ask three questions. He's going to ask three questions and answer them. And each question, each question that he asks uses a phrase from Psalm 95. And then he answers the question by referring us back to the events in Numbers 14. So he's helping us understand the meaning of those events and the implications for us today. Three questions with these three answers. That's an effective way of teaching, isn't it? Ask questions and answers. Questions that are people are thinking. That's what he's doing. He's just, by asking questions, he's drawing out the meaning and implications, and it's really, really powerful and sobering. So that's all I want to do as we look through this. Each of these questions has a main point he's driving at. So let's just look at it under this heading here, the danger of unbelief, part three. Here, here's, here's the first question, the first point of the first question. Number one, the culpability of their unbelief. The culpability, that is, they're, they're without excuse for their unbelief. Verse 16, he's drawing out. He just says, as in the rebellion. Now, now watch him ask these questions. For who rebelled even when they had heard? So you can begin to hear this culpability. Who re- even though they heard, who was it that rebelled? So he's taking us back to Numbers 15 to the story. Do you remember who it was who rebelled? His answer, all those who came out of Egypt. So here's here's the point, the culpability of their unbelief. All those who came out of Egypt, who entered into a covenant, who saw God's mighty works, rebelled in unbelief. That is a staggering example. That's in the Bible, right? That's why he's drawing us back. That's why we... This year we preach Old Testament, New Testament, because we're, we're supposed to know these things because they serve as an example for us. What an example. All of those who came out of Egypt, who entered into the covenant at Mount Sinai, they were there on the mountain receiving that great angelic mediated word. All of those fell. They rebelled. Not just a few. It wasn't just, well, there's always a few bad apples in the crowd. The Bible listed at 600,000 that generation of men <laughs> fell. The culpability, that is, they're without excuse. Again, just remember, that's what he's trying. You see how he phrases it there? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses... What's he drawing your mind to? The Exodus. Remember what this generation observed. They saw all the plagues in Egypt. They participated in the first Passover with that angel, death coming and passing by their house because of the blood. They they saw the Red Sea. They walked through it on dry land. They watched the waters annihilate the army of Pharaoh. They were given water from a rock. They were given manna from heaven. They saw the great revelation at Mount Sinai. All of the, those are the ones who rebelled in unbelief. You hear the power of this example? 
It is really powerful. It's written for our instruction. We're to learn from this, to take heed of it. Now, what's, what's he, when he says all, what's he referring to? Well, again, he's referring back to Numbers. You can keep your finger back there in Numbers chapter 14 if you want, because that's how he's answering his questions is by what actually happened at Kadesh at that event of the rebellion. So here, just listen to Numbers 14 and listen to the emphasis on all. Verse, verse 1, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Verse 10, all the congregation said to stone, there were stone, Moses, Aaron, Caleb, Joshua, the whole congregation, all the congregation said to stone them there. Verse 22 of chapter 14, the Lord speaking, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in the wilderness, in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test ten times and have not listened to my voice. It's the whole congregation. That's what he's drawing on here. All of them. Now we know, and our author knows, there were two notable exceptions. Kids, you remember who those two were? Two exceptions. Caleb and Joshua, and they note those in the text, and they stand out, don't they? And the point of that is the kind of faith we're to have is like Caleb, who trusted the promise of God. Caleb Caleb was an exceptional, like an exceptional guy in faith. He was just, he was a believer who trusted God's promises. So to be like that and not like this generation. So that's the first question. And the first point, here's second question, second point, the certainty of God's wrath for their unbelief. So watch him now, the certainty of God's wrath for their unbelief. Second question, verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Again, he's referring back to Psalm 95 where he says, 40 years, he was angry, that generation. With whom was he angry? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Here's the point. All those who rebelled in unbelief fell in the wilderness over the next 40 years as an act of God's judgment. All those who rebelled, which is the whole congregation of adults, all those who rebelled fell. Every one of them fell in the wilderness over the next 40-year period as an act of of God's judgment. He, again, he's referring back to the original wording of Psalm 95, where God says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. Really strong words. That's his righteous judgment, his righteous anger. He loathed that generation. Again, notice the wording there in verse 17 of our text. Was it not with those who sinned? What's the sin? Unbelief. They didn't believe his promises, and therefore they didn't go into land. And then notice how he phrases it, whose whose bodies, it's literally whose corpses, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. And he's reflecting the language of Numbers chapter 14. And the point of that kind of language is to say, this isn't just, he doesn't just say who died. Now they died. But the emphasis is they died under judgment. The imagery of being unburied, accursed. Their death was the judgment of God for 40 years. 
Now again, what's he, what's he referring to? Well, again, back to the book of Numbers and chapter 14. He's just picking up the language of the actual account and giving us the answer. So here's Numbers 14, verse 28. Say to them, here's the Lord's oath. Remember he said the Lord swore this? As I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, he says. Verse 32, but as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt, a year, even 40 years, and you shall know my opposition, he says. So this 40 years was not just a normal kind of 40 years of wandering. This was God's judgment until they're all dead. They're falling under his judgment. Do you know that we know almost nothing about those 40 years? Sometimes we think of, the Bible talks about the 40 years in the wilderness. Well, not really. Not really. If you follow the timeline of the Bible, the people leave Egypt. They spend about a month or more coming to Mount Sinai. They leave Mount Sinai, maybe another couple months until they get to Kadesh, they rebel at Kadesh, God judges them. And then 40 years later, the younger generation is back. There's only really one event that I'm aware of that I think that's recorded during those 40 years. It's Korah's rebellion, which gives you some indication of where their hearts continue to be at. So we're not told anything really about the 40 years because the point of the 40 years is that it's a period of his judgment of which they are falling under judgment in the wilderness. It's a time of judgment. God's judgment, God's wrath was unrelenting until the death of the last rebel. That's the 40 years. It's quite sobering, isn't it? Which means their rebellion at Kadesh, I said this a couple weeks ago, it wasn't a momentary lapse of faith or courage. It was hard-hearted rebellion. It was their final disobedience from which there was no recovery, only judgment. So that's the second question and the second point, the certainty of God's wrath. Third point related to the third question, the ultimate consequences for their unbelief. Here's the third question, verse 18 in our text. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Again, picking up the language of Psalm 95, to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest? To those who were disobedient, those who rebelled, unbelief, same people. Here's the point. God swore that they would not, this generation would not enter the promised land, a type of his final salvation rest. He swore, so if you go back to the story in Numbers, the language 
It's being picked up there from Psalm 95. Is what did God swear? You're not entering the land, the promised land that I swore to your fathers to give you. You will not enter the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews here is picking up that Psalm 95 interprets that as not entering God's rest. See it? He's, he's picking up the language from Psalm 95. So it's not the writer of Hebrews who's, who's drawing this type out. It's Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit who said, you shall not enter my rest. That's what it means. Now that understanding of them not entering the promised land as a not entering God's rest is a very significant understanding of the text. And the Holy Spirit gave it to us in Psalm 95. He's going to develop, the writer of Hebrews is going to develop that idea in chapter 4. So we'll see it in the weeks to come. This idea of rest, because he sees in that that there's yet a promise of rest. So we'll, we'll see that. Now, I said there that it's a type. Entering the promised land for that generation was a type of God's final salvation rest. When we use that language type or typology, if you're not familiar with that, when we refer to types, what we're referring to are Old Testament realities. They could be people, places, events, institutions, things like the promised land of Canaan, Old Testament realities which are fulfilled in a corresponding, greater reality in Christ and the new covenant. That's a type. It's a picture. It's a reality. It's real under the old covenant, but it's pointing to a greater reality in the fulfillment in Christ. So that's how he's using promised land. Promised land's a real place. It's a real geography. But yet, in this sense, it's a type of final salvation rest that all the people of God are heading towards. Right? So that's a type. Now, don't overpress the type. So this is important here. Psalm 95 is applying this type specifically to those who rebelled. That generation, because of their rebellion and unbelief, didn't enter God's rest. They didn't enter the promised land, but ultimately they did not enter God's rest. But don't miss this. Not everyone who failed to enter the land also failed to enter God's rest. It's not true. Not everyone who failed to enter the land also failed to enter God's rest. Right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the patriarchs never enter the land in this completed sense of fulfillment. The whole generation in Egypt didn't. And most obvious maybe in our story of numbers is Moses and Aaron and Miriam didn't. Now Moses and Aaron didn't enter the land because of a different reason, not unbelief, not a hard-hearted rebellion. As leaders, God held them accountable, and so they had a consequence for not entering the land. But they very much entered God's rest, finally, right? In fact, we just were told in chapter 3 of Hebrews, the beginning, the faithfulness of Moses. Remember, he was faithful in God's house. He's part of God's house. We're part of the same house. So don't, don't misapply the type and think, well, what do you do with Moses? They didn't enter. Yeah, they didn't enter the land for a different reason, but, it's, but they still entered the rest. He's applying it to this generation. And then, then on the other side, there will be many. In fact, probably a majority of Israelites who will enter the land 
who do not enter God's rest. In fact, that's the point of Psalm 95. Centuries after they've been in the land, there's still a rest that awaits. And many, even though they entered the land, would not enter God's final rest. So just apply the type rightly. as He's applying it to this generation because of their unbelief and their rebellion. But, but note this. This is a big takeaway here. The consequences for their rebellion, for their unbelief in the wilderness, are not merely temporal, but eternal. That's God's rest. When you, when you fail to enter the rest, it's his final resting place. Again, that's what he's going to draw out in Hebrews chapter 4. The final resting place. It's, just, it's not that they missed out on some temporal blessing in the land. They fell in unbelief under God's judgment, picturing ultimately that final judgment. They missed ultimately God's rest. So throughout this book of Hebrews, as he warns of unbelief, he is not merely saying, if you fall into unbelief, you're going to miss out on some rewards or you're going to miss out on some fruitfulness. He is warning about the danger of ultimate loss of failing to enter the rest of God. What the writer of Hebrews would call that heavenly Jerusalem, that heavenly city. That's what's in view here. So we'll, we'll think a little bit more about that next week, but I want to make sure you get that. So there, there are the three questions with his three answers that are highlighting the, the meaning of what went on back in Numbers 14. And then he just summarizes it in verse 19 again. And so we see that they were not able to enter. They were not able to enter. In fact, do you remember the the scene at the end of Numbers 14 after the people hear this devastating word of their judgment? The next morning they wake up and said, we're going to do it, we're going to enter. Moses said, don't. You're just adding to your rebellion. And they were not able to enter. Their judgment was a final judgment. It wasn't a genuine repentance So he says, we see that they were not able to enter. Again, why? Because of unbelief. Unbelief is the ultimate and comprehensive description of their rebellion. He calls it rebellion. He calls it sin. He calls it disobedience. But what's the ultimate description? Unbelief. That's what's under all that. They did not trust the promises or the character, the goodness of God and his power. They rejected him. Now, that's going to lead our author, we'll see it in the weeks to come, to his second main exhortation. His first one was watch out. Second one will be in chapter 4, in verse 1, let us fear, lest while a promise of re- of entering his rest remains, any one of you should seem to come short of it. So he's going to pick up on this idea of rest and say, we, we've got to press on. So we'll see that in the weeks to come. But, but firstly, the verses we just looked at serve to undergird, undergird his first exhortation. They make it weighty. So let me, let me finish. I'll just give you these three implications from what we just saw. There's three implications from those verses. Number one, unbelief today in light of God's final word in his son, 
is more egregious and inexcusable than Israel's unbelief. Unbelief, failure to trust Christ and to cling to Christ in the gospel is more egregious and inexcusable than Israel's unbelief in the wilderness. This is part of the big point of the writer of Hebrews. He's just always arguing from lesser to greater, from type to fulfillment. And that's what he's been trying to argue. Oh, Christian, oh, church, you, you have received, we have received the final great climactic revelation, not through angels, but in Jesus, God in the flesh, Christmas. We have received that, the culmination of all of God's revelation. So greater, greater than the Red Sea crossing, greater than manna from heaven, we have the gift of the Son in the flesh, the fullness and finality of God's revelation. And therefore, oh, what a greater weight we have, a greater responsibility to believe God in the gospel, to believe his promises and to cling to Christ and a greater consequence for neglecting it. So remember back in chapter 2, he's already said this after showing the superiority of the Son over angels. He says, for this reason, we must pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You hear it? From lesser to greater. And perhaps maybe one of the most sobering and severe parts of his letter later in chapter 10. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews will say. This is powerful. This is, this is right after saying we have to hold fast our confession. So, so don't forsake assembling together. We saw it last week. Meet together, encourage one another. And then he says this. For if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. You hear those words? A responsibility to believe. And so I, I would urge you, especially this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior alone, if you've never responded to God's word in Jesus, today he's calling. If you hear his voice in the gospel, this good news saying, repent and believe, don't harden your hearts. Don't trample underfoot the Son of God. Don't call God a liar. Come to faith in Christ. So that's the first implication. Here's the second. It is possible to be part of God's people outwardly and know much about him and yet finally fall away in unbelief. It's possible to be part of God's people, at least outwardly, hear, know, see so much about him and yet fall away in final unbelief. Isn't that the powerful example of that generation in Israel? 
They were the covenant people of God. They experienced that redemption outwardly out of Egypt. Now, they, yes, the old covenant people become people of God, different terms than new covenant. They were physically the people of God. They were redeemed outwardly, physically through the Red Sea. They saw those great things at Mount Sinai. They, they were fed manna. They received water from the rock. They saw so much of God and his goodness. And in the end, they're unbelieving under judgment. Isn't that the sobering, powerful example of that generation? They did not believe. So just take, take warning, I guess. Maybe you had a good beginning in Christ. Maybe even an initial faith and joy and excitement. But you have grown cold in your affections. Your appetites for him, for his word, don't exist or are barely there. Maybe there's an increased hypocrisy in your life, like this attachment to the church, but not, not when I go to work or in my family. If that's you, again, listen to the exhortation. If you hear his voice today, don't, don't harden your hearts in unbelief. Repent. Ask him to renew that affection for Christ, your faith. In Christ. Remember the book of Revelation, the word to the church at Ephesus says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of your place unless you repent. So just heed that word. Today is a day that He's graciously extending that to you. And then, third, last implication. Beware, let's, let's get back to his central exhortation in this about watchfulness. Beware, watch out of nurturing a heart of unbelief in God's power, promise, and goodness through incessant grumbling and growing disobedience. That's a mouthful, I know. I'm, I'm just coming back to this, this central application of Psalm 95 where he says, Brothers and sisters, watch out. Take vigilance. Be on guard, lest there be in any one of you a heart of unbelief, an evil, unbelieving heart. So, so how do you watch out? We talked about that a little bit last week, but what are, you, what are you watching for? What are some early signs of unbelief? Well, I think two of them, and you see them in the example of Israel. One is grumbling, complaining. I say, really? I thought that would be way like down on the list of those ranking of sins. That's what Israel's indicted for over and over. Their incessant grumbling against God, that he's not good. My circumstances are not good. Remember, that's, that's how it all began. That's, that's the 
trajectory, you might say, that the nation of Israel is on when they came out of Egypt and met with no water and immediately the grumbling starts and no, no food and immediately the grumbling starts. And where does that culminate? It culminates at Kadesh in a hard heart of unbelief. So just be on guard. Grumbling and growing disobedience. Now, this is not a call for some kind of perfection or sinlessness. We sin, we sin daily. But we are repentant sinners. We sin and we're repenting and we're seeking to put sin to death. The disobedience I'm concerned about here, and the writer of Hebrews will be, is that growing disobedience where there is no repentance. Where you're comfortable with Various forms, maybe subtle forms of disobedience. So be, be on guard. So ask yourself, are you, are you characterized this morning by gratitude, by trust, or by complaining? Is your desire to, to trust and obey, to follow? And when I do sin, and we do, to, to repent, when I'm sensing I'm growing cold, ask, Lord, grant me renewed affections for you. So I just hold out, beware of the drifting. Watch out over your heart. And as we said last week, we need each other for that. Encourage one another day after day, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So be part of the body. Engage with one another. These are tough words. Let me pray for us next week. I think I promise. <laughs> How's that for a promise? I, I, uh, we're we're going to take up the bigger issue of how do we understand these warnings and exhortations in light of our security in Christ? H- how should we hear these as believers? It's, it's an important question. We're going to see it all through Hebrews. So, Lord willing, we'll consider that next week, and then we'll jump into chapter 4. Let me pray for us. Father... Oh, I pray we would hear your voice right now through the writer of Hebrews. And if there's any drift in us, if there's any coldness, if there's any just incessant grumbling, if there's forms of disobedience, if there's hypocrisy, Lord, would you expose it and use others to expose it and just grant us repentance and grace to continue to hold fast to Jesus until the end. We need your grace, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.